Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the Governor of Ohio signing a bill on Monday that would have school employees armed with as little as 24 hours training in the use of firearms. This following Sunday's announcement that a bipartisan group of senators have reached a deal on gun safety that would enhance safety measures at schools and support training for school employees and students. Joining us is Jonathan Zimmerman, Professor of the History of Education at the University of Pennsylvania, who was previously Professor of Education and History and Director of the History of Education Program at the Steinhardt School of Culture, Education and Human Development at New York University. A former Peace Corps volunteer and high school teacher, he is the author of a number of books, including Who's America? Culture Wars in the Public Schools, and most recently, Free Speech and Why You Should Give a Damn. We will discuss the madness of arming untrained teachers after trained and equipped police fail to stop an active shooter massacring students in Uvalde, Texas, and how Republicans do not trust teachers to decide what they teach in the classroom, but trust them to have loaded guns around children with far less training than what is required to drive a car. Then, with stocks down 20% and inflation rising to 8.6% in May, the fastest rate since 1981, we'll examine the Federal Reserve's expected rise in interest rates of three-quarters of a percentage point on Wednesday and speak with Christopher Leonard, a business reporter whose work has appeared in the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, Fortune and Bloomberg Businessweek. He is the executive director of the Watchdog Writers Group at the Missouri School of Journalism and the author of Cokeland, The Secret History of Coke Industries and Corporate Power in America, and most recently, The Lords of Easy Money, How the Federal Reserve Broke the American Economy. We will discuss his op-ed in the New York Times, If You Must Point Fingers on Inflation, Here's Where to Point Them, and how the Fed's balance sheet before the 2008 crash was $900 billion, but by 2015 it had risen to $4.5 trillion, and is just short of $9 trillion today, suggesting that the era of easy money for Wall Street is over. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Jonathan Zimmerman, who's a professor of the history of education at the University of Pennsylvania. He was formerly professor of education and history and director of the history and education program at the Steinhardt School of Culture, Education, and Human Development at New York University a former Peace Corps volunteer and high school teacher. He's the author of a number of books, including Who's America? Culture Wars in the Public Schools, and most recently, Free Speech and Why You Should Give a Damn. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jonathan Zimmer. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. And over the weekend on Sunday, the uh, Senate came up with a bipartisan deal to 
come up with some kind of gun reform in the wake of the horrible massacres in Buffalo and Uvalde, Texas. And they did, uh, part of their plan was to boost uh, school security resources. And on Monday, the governor of Ohio, Mike DeWine, signed a bill that would arm more school teachers in the state of Ohio. And DeWine said that school staff who want to carry weapons will be required to have at least 24 hours of training. It just strikes me as a kind of madness. I mean, how does it strike you? Uh, I think you're right. It is a kind of madness. Um, and I think the best way you can tell is by surveying school teachers. Look, really behind all of this, despite this talk about protecting teachers, is disregard for teachers. Because when you survey teachers about these ideas, about arming them, or even about, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, hardening the target and all that rhetoric, overwhelmingly, they reject these ideas. They don't want to be armed. They don't want their school to be a hardened target. So the sad irony, I think, of these measures is, of course, they're purportedly about defending teachers, right, and making teachers safe and making schools safe. But what they really represent is our dismissal and our disdain of teachers who, in mass, don't want any part of this. Well, apropos of what you just said, Jonathan, the president of the Cleveland Teachers Union called the effort to arm teachers ironic, given that state lawmakers tried to ban how teachers talked about race in classrooms. Just, just to quote Shari Obrensky, educators are being told we are not trusted to decide what to teach in the classroom, a job we study for and are licensed to do, but we are trusted to have loaded guns around children with far less training than is required to drive a car. That's an excellent point, and um, let's also pause to note that the laws that she's referring to were brought to you by the same party that complains about cancel culture on our campuses. Um, what could be a more stark example of cancel culture than laws that bar teachers from discussing certain subjects? I mean, that's cancel culture with the teeth of law. But, but I take her point, right? And in both cases, frankly, I would say it reflects a lack of trust. I mean, of course, they're saying they trust teachers to walk around with armed weapons, but they don't trust teachers, right? Um, obviously, they're, to her point, passing these measures restricting what teachers can uh, you know, say and do in the classroom. But more to the point, what I was saying earlier, they don't trust teachers in the sense that they're ignoring what teachers want. Teachers do not want our schools to be fortresses, and they don't want to be armed policemen in them. Well, the armed policemen in Uvalde, 19 of them, stood outside the door of the classroom in which the shooter with the assault rifle systematically murdered 19 children and two teachers, and they did nothing about it. So why would there be an expectation that untrained teachers in firearms would do better than the police did. <laughs> you, you have me, and I'm sorry to laugh because there's nothing funny about it, um, but it is hugely, hugely ironic and sad. And also, let's pause to note that, you know, the party that's resisting almost all forms of gun regulation is also the party that fashions itself the law and order party. Um, uh, but hold on a second. You know, um, if you believe in law and order, I think you want stronger regulations. You want stronger laws. But on this subject, of course, what they want is to take the laws away. 
Um, uh, so, you know, I think there are a huge number of contradictions running through all of this. And again, I'm speaking with Jonathan Zimmerman, who's a professor of the history of education at the University of Pennsylvania. He was previously professor of education and history and director of the history of education program at the Steinart School of Culture, Education, and Human Development at New York University. He's a former Peace Corps volunteer and high school teacher, and he's the author of a number of books, including Who's America? Culture Wars in the Public Schools, and most recently, Free Speech and Why You Should Give a Damn. So let's talk a bit about this bipartisan deal that was struck over on Sunday, announced on Sunday, where 10 Republican senators have joined in with the Democrats, which takes you over the the, uh, filibuster threshold but nobody's suggesting if there's anything particularly bold about what has been put forward. And for some reason or other, they have maintained this huge hole in the background checks, which is that unlicensed gun dealers are free to sell guns uh, anywhere in the country uh, without a federal license at gun shows and out of the back of their pickup truck. And this is just absolutely amazing. I mean, I talked to a uh, specialist on gun safety yesterday, he said it'd be like at the airport where you have these lines to go through the metal detectors after 9-11, but there'd be an, another line that people carrying guns could simply walk through without metal detectors. So that's about <laughs> as absurd as it is. So given that context, it's not exactly a great deal. But let me talk a little bit about the school security resources part of the proposed legislation. It would address school security, and the the lawmakers said in their release on Sunday, they proposed providing money to, quote, to help institute safety measures in and around primary and secondary schools, while also supporting school violence prevention efforts and training for school employees and students. So how far do you think this process will get? I mean, the teachers' unions obviously are opposed to it, but yeah, well, look, imp- I, think, I think we don't know. I think there's a lot of ambiguity that surrounds all these things, right, including, by the way, the mental health provisions, right, you know, um, providing expanded mental health services, but unclear, you know, how many services, who would pay for them. It seems to me at this point the school security stuff is in the same category, right? Um, you know, I, um, I can imagine different kinds of school security that I would want enhanced, I'm not against school security any more than I'm against mental health. I think um, the devil's in the details, and I think we don't know any of the details yet. On your larger point, Ian, about the deal, I mean, I agree with you that in some ways it's small potatoes, but I think we have to start somewhere. And I also believe that these measures will make us safer. They won't make us as safe as we should be. Um, And the loopholes that you're describing are outrageous. Um, but I also think we have to be very careful not to make perfect the enemy of the good here. It is a good thing. In fact, it is a great thing that there will be background checks for buyers between 18 and 21. To your point, there should be background checks for everybody, but it's still a good thing that we'll have background checks for that population. It's a good thing that the, you know, the domestic violence restrictions that, you know, allow a gun to be confiscated in that case were extended to boyfriends, you know, not just to husbands and to, you know, shared parents. That's also a good thing. Um, so I think we do need to be a little bit careful here um, that, uh, again, I'm mixing metaphors not to throw out the baby with the bathwater. I think people like Senator Murphy deserve an enormous amount of kudos. 
for, uh, for, for moving us even this far. I couldn't agree with you more. In fact, Murphy seems to be the, the only kind of presidential prospects that the Democrats have. So I hope um, he... But, 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 but also, you know, if I could add one more thing, um, I'm a liberal Democrat, and um, uh, like Chris Murphy, and I'm not sure that my team has done itself lots of favors in the way that we've approached this issue. So let's just take one very obvious example. Um, I was saying earlier that it's ironic that the Republicans are the party of law and order, but they don't want, you know, any, most of them don't want any laws surrounding guns. And that's a contradiction and a huge one. But I think there's also a contradiction, although not quite as stark in the way that many people on my team approach these issues, where we want lots of laws and much stricter laws around gun ownership. I know that I do. But at the same time, some of us are asking for less law enforcement. It's like, hmm... You know, more laws, less law enforcement. How that's working out for you? And by the way, who's going to enforce those laws? Ghostbusters? Um, uh, you know, so there's, there's, I think, an interesting and problematic tension there, too. And what I imagine, the only way we could really break this impasse and have serious gun regulation is if we crafted a much larger compromise whereby the Republicans would agree to have much, much stricter laws and the Democrats would agree to have much stricter law enforcement. But we're talking past each other, and we're radically polarized, so I don't see that happening tomorrow. Well, we are in an election year, and the the expectation is that the Democrats will lose the House in November, and that would make uh, Jim Jordan, the kind of rabid attack dog, fast-talking congressman who wears short-sleeved shirts, um, <laughs> he would be the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee. So you can imagine that we'll have nothing but in, in investigations of Hunter Biden for the next four years, or well, next two uh, which years. Is a, which is a terrifying prospect. Right. Um, but, you know, but back to the criminal justice matter, I mean, I think that Democrats have kind of lost the plot there. Um, if you want stricter gun laws and if you want fewer guns on the street, you know what? You're going to have to take more criminals off the street. You are. But most of us won't say that out loud. Again, just because of the way this issue has been polarized, let me be completely clear. You know, the Republicans are reprehensible for, um, you know, not just foot dragging, but really just radically obfuscating any meaningful gun regulation. And I'm not in any way trying to apologize for them. Um, but at the same time, you know, I think my team could help bring us a little bit closer if we were more honest and explicit about what real gun regulation will, will, will take. Right. And what it will take is enforcing and probably incarcerating more people that break the law with guns. Let's just say it because it's true. Right. Well, I don't mean to keep talking about the political environment, but I think it's something that we can't ignore, uh, Jonathan Zimmerman. So this is the, the real challenge is for the Democrats to not just to hold on to power, but to increase their numbers in the Senate and the House. Because Correct. you've got, as I mentioned, you'll have Jim Jordan having these uh, Benghazi-type hearings, uh, grandstanding, for the next couple of years. And then, of course, if Donald Trump comes back, we can just remind the audience that in the aftermath of the 2018 shooting in Parkland, Florida, at the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School, then-President Donald Trump called for the army of teachers. I quote, a teacher would have a concealed gun on them. They'd go for special training and they would be there yeah. and you would no longer be a gun-free zone. 
you'd have a lot of people that would be armed. That would be ready. I mean, the And madness. the teachers do not want that, back to the earlier point. And that's really, to me, the most salient point. You know, um, obviously there are, you know, some three million pe- teachers in this country, they disagree with each other, but en masse, in the main, they find all of that absurd and terrifying and reprehensible, which it is. And look, Ian, I take your point, right? These are precarious political times, but that's also my point, right? I think one of the reasons they're precarious, my team, i.e. the Democrats, have kind of lost the plot on criminal justice. Um, You know, most minorities in this country want more police, not fewer, more. Um, And that's what we should be pleading for in the same time as we plead for stricter laws about guns. Not only do I think that would be honest, but I also think it would be a political winner. Well, do you think that the teachers' unions are strong enough to resist being forced to arm themselves? And, I mean... uh, well, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a historian, and we have a hard enough time documenting the past without predicting the future. But I will say it's very, very difficult for me to imagine that coming to pass, you know, in, in a, on scale, right? Um, I could imagine perhaps some schools in certain parts of the country where we see armed teachers. But remember, there are, there are over 13,000 school districts in this country, right? And so what that means is there's going to be massive variation. Um, but if we're talking about the bulk of schools, that will never happen. And I think there are many reasons for it. But the primary one is that the teachers don't want it, um, and, and they simply wouldn't stand for it. And would the Federal Department of Education have a role here? I recall during Trump administrations, Betsy DeVos was in charge of the Department of Education, and she suggested that teachers need guns if a bear comes yes, to but, 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 you know, she didn't really put anything behind that. And I think that in DeVos's case, I mean, one of the things that we learned is she just wasn't really that interested in public schools. You know, well, I mean, really where what she was trying to do was to promote vouchers and Christian academies and charters and homeschooling. Um, the bulk of American kids go to public schools, and as best we can tell, that will always be the case. It has been for 200 years. And Betsy DeVos wasn't particularly interested in public schools. Um, And fortunately, in my view, you know, her efforts to undermine them, I think, were largely unsuccessful. Um, The the current guy, Miguel Cardona, I mean, very different biography. And by the way, a very interesting one. You know, his parents came here from Puerto Rico. I mean, second language English learner, um, you know, went through the public schools and then climbed, you know, through University of Connecticut, through different uh, teacherships, principalships, superintendent of Connecticut, um, and now the, uh, you know, the sector of education. So unlike many people, including DeVos, that have held that role, he is a career educator. Um, and, you know, I think he was an excellent pick. Um, you know, there was, uh, you know, there was, there, there, there was talk actually of making or trying to uh, promote Randy Weingartner, you know, from the teachers' union in the sector of education. I think that would have been quite a mistake. Um, uh, um, for a variety of reasons. I think having somebody that has worked continuously in the schools like Cardona has is great because I think, you know, as a career educator, I think that um, he recognizes how absurd it is to imagine teachers being armed. Um, You know, what he can do and what the federal government can do in that zone, I think, A, is an open question, depending how this kind of new compromise law is interpreted. And B, let's also remember that, you know, our schools remain local and state endeavors. The federal footprint in education is very small. 
Um, uh, remember, you know, the feds don't make curriculum in this country. They don't hire or pay teachers. Um, so, you know, obviously they control some purse strings. It's around 12%. And uh, a figure like Miguel Cardona also has a bully pulpit, which is important. But I also think that it's always a fool's errand to to um, uh, depend on or rely on the federal government educational matters because in this country, education is overwhelmingly a state and mostly a local concern. Well, Jonathan Zimmerman, I thank you for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank you. It was fun. And again, I've been speaking with Jonathan Zimmerman, who's a professor of history of education at the University of Pennsylvania. He was previously professor of education, history, and director of the history of education program at the Steinhardt School of Culture, Education, and Human Development at New York University. He's also is a former Peace Corps volunteer and high school teacher, and he's the author of a number of books, including Who's America? Culture Wars in the Public Schools, and most recently, Free Speech and Why You Should Give a Damn. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back discussing the expected rise of interest rates by the Fed on Wednesday and how the era of easy money for Wall Street is over. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Christopher Leonard, a business reporter whose work has appeared in The Washington Post, The Wall Street Journal, Fortune, and Bloomberg Businessweek. He's the executive director of the Watchdog Writers Group at the Missouri School of Journalism and the author of Cokeland, The Secret History of Coke Industries and Corporate Power in America, and most recently, The Lords of Easy Money, How the Federal Reserve Broke the American Economy. And he also has an op-ed at the New York Times. If you must point fingers on inflation, here's where to point them. Welcome to Background Briefing, Christopher Leonard. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And today, Tuesday, President Biden speaking at the AFL-CO convention in Philadelphia uh, acknowledged uh, that inflation is sapping the strength of a lot of families and this, of course, is happening. This speech is an expectation that tomorrow, Wednesday, the Federal Reserve could raise interest rates as much as three-quarters of a percentage point. So let's begin with that. Do you share that expectation, Christopher? Uh, I, I do, because it looks like the Fed pretty clearly telegraphed that through uh, its you know, cooperating media outlets. They, they sort of telegraphed the stuff before a meeting, and... It, it was expected that the Fed would hike half a point, so to speak, you know, half a percentage point. But last week, the the new inflation readings are, are just shockingly bad. It, it's just very clear that inflation has embedded itself in the economic system. It's not going away. It's not a short-term problem. It's not because of log jams at the ports or, or even the you know warehouse shutdowns because of COVID or even because of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, although all this stuff is feeding into it. And 
the 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 new numbers as they come in that show inflation rising faster and faster at the highest level now since 1981 is really pushing the fed to hike rates much faster than it otherwise would with and what i'm trying to say and what i've tried to report in the book is that the fed has really set the table for an economic disaster and it's because of policies that have been going on for 10 years and it's going to exacerbate what was already a pretty tough situation. And the figures are pretty bad. The stock market, of course, was plunging. Stocks are down 20% from uh, the recent highs. And in the inflation report for May has prices rising at 8.6%, as you point out, which is the fastest rate since 1981. So then let's get to your thesis then. Let's talk about why it is that the Fed's to blame more than anything else. And, of course, the Republicans are going to be blaming Biden. They're already relishing that. It'll be the campaign theme going through to the end of the year. So uh, go ahead and point the finger of inflation where it should be, and that is at the Fed. Exactly. And it's frustrating to see... I mean, I guess it's frustrating to a lot of people to see the sort of political rhetoric going on right now. Yes, the Republicans are really seizing on particularly the stock market crash that's happening. And I call it kind of a slow motion crash. It'll go down week by week and then maybe bounce up a little bit. But we're in we're in for a very rough road in 2022. And this would be happening regardless of whether Joe Biden was president or Donald Trump was president. It, it, it almost doesn't matter. And here's what's going on. You've got to look at what the Federal Reserve has been doing for the last decade. This really traces back to 2010 when the Federal Reserve under Chairman Ben Bernanke made a policy choice that they were going to try to effectively supercharge the banking system by doing two things at once. They're gonna keep interest rates at zero, which had really never been done before on an extended level or an enduring level. And while they were keeping rates at zero, they were gonna pump trillions of dollars into the banking system through a totally unprecedented and experimental program called quantitative easing. So this is exactly what the Fed has done. And to me, the key headline is, we gotta understand over a decade, the Fed, has rearranged our financial system around what they call easy money, super cheap debt, tons of new cash pouring into the banking system, 0% interest rates. This has inflated the price of all these assets across the market. It's why the stock market doubled. It's why housing prices are rising double digits every year. It's why there's a boom in cryptocurrency. The Fed was very patiently pumping up these asset prices through easy money policies for a decade. And the problem is inflation is forcing the Fed to end the era of easy money. The bill is coming due. And it could have come due under Donald Trump. It could have come due under a hypothetical President Romney. It's coming due under Joe Biden. But the high, the high price tag has been accruing for a decade. So, you know, we're going to see tremendous volatility and and frankly, just kind of like financial market carnage for the next year. And, and I think we really need to understand that this has been years in the making. 
And as you point out in your article in the New York Times, if you must point fingers on inflation, here's where to point them. Christopher Leonard, you point out that the Fed's balance sheet was about $900 billion in the mid-2008 before the financial crash, and it rose to $4.5 trillion in 2015, and today it's just short of $9 trillion. So you've pointed out that the Fed's policies have, have turned Wall Street into uh, what they call a search for yield, and money is poured, just to quote from your article, money is poured into relatively risky assets like technology stocks, corporate junk debt, commercial real estate bonds, and even cryptocurrencies and non-fungible tokens, or NFTs. This drove the price of those risky assets higher, drawing in yet more investment. Well, crypto, of course, has never made any sense to me, Christopher. Isn't it fundamentally that you use real money to buy fake money? Uh, Yeah. And I mean, listen, crypto is a great example of what we're talking about here during this era of super easy money. When people talk about inflation, they talk about too many dollars trying to buy too few goods. That's one way to think about it. That's why prices just rise and rise and rise and rise. This is what I'm trying to describe, what happened in the financial markets. There was, When you just described the Fed balance sheet quintupling over a decade, that's the reason we talk about the balance sheet is it's a reflection of how much cash the Fed was pumping into Wall Street, trillions of dollars while interest rates are kept at zero. So that money was seeking assets to buy like cryptocurrency, like risky corporate leveraged loans, like uh, Tesla stock. And, and it drove up all these asset prices. But, you know, as you point out, does, does, does crypto make sense? It, it's like a currency that doesn't work well as a currency. It's just one of these things that saw its price rise and rise and rise. It's what we call an asset bubble. And we see these bubbles across across markets right now. And that is what has, has again, really set the table for a lot of volatility because the Fed is being forced to take away the easy money because of inflation. And that is going to create this wrenching downturn that we're seeing right now. And again, I'm speaking with Christopher Leonard, who's a business reporter whose work has appeared in The Washington Post, The Wall Street Journal, Fortune, and Bloomberg Businessweek. He's executive director of the Watchdog Writers Group at the Missouri School of Journalism and the author of Cokeland, The Secret History of Coke Industries and Corporate Power in America, and most recently, The Lords of Easy Money, How the Federal Reserve Broke the American Economy. And he also has an op-ed at the New York Times. If you must point fingers on inflation, here's where to point them. Of course, you and I, Christopher, are trying to deal in in reality in post-truth America. And I'm not sure that reality, truth, facts, information have a lot of traction in <laughs> our politics and in particularly in this political year. So it, given where the economy appears to be going Surely this is going to be a disaster for the Democrats. The 401k people, which is a pretty big constituency, right, who vote regularly, they'll vote Republican, wouldn't you expect? Uh, I think it's, uh, it, it's, it's almost inevitable. Um, 
just just take away the names on the doors right now. Uh, when you've got an economic downturn before a midterm election, and when you've got inflation at 8%, and when you've got the stock market declining by 20%, the party in power will be blamed. That's just like uh, political gravity that you can't fight. I guess it's just as a reporter, and and you know you're in the same job of sort of you know reporting, sharing ideas. I think the best we can do is try to explain accurately what's happening, and that's why you know I, I guess one point I want to make if we're talking about the midterm elections and if we're talking about the political impact of this, it's very important to look back at the decade between 2010 and 2020 which the Lords of Easy Money really talks about, the book talks about, because our our democratic institutions were paralyzed. Congress is, is famously paralyzed. Few people dispute that Congress was riven by partisanship and pushed itself to the sidelines. And on economic affairs, we, we tried to kind of rely on the Fed to push the rock uphill. We relied on the Fed to try to drive economic growth. But all the Fed can do is print money. And yes, it did that to an extraordinary extent, but when we look back, it didn't help. It, it it drove up income inequality, it created this fragility in the financial system that we're talking about, it, it created massive amounts of new debt. So looking forward, I, I argue whether you're conservative or liberal, Democrat, Republican, we have got to get our democratic institutions functioning again. And and yes, we are living through an economically painful, painful, painful moment. And and I think what we need to do is keep our eyes focused on who has the best plan to to move the country forward, to, to, to impose or enact fiscal policies in Congress that you think will best be able to drive uh, prosperity and create prosperity. Well, the argument that uh, President Biden has come up with on Tuesday speaking before the AFL-CIO convention in Philadelphia is essentially, quote, the problem is Republicans in Congress are doing everything they can to stop my plans to bring down costs on ordinary family families. That's why my plan is not finished and why the results aren't finished either. And then he went on to say, jobs are back, but prices are still too high. COVID is down but gas prices are up. Our work isn't done. But here's the deal. America still has a choice to make, a choice between government by the few, for the few, or a government for all of us. Do you think that's going to work, that message? Well, I just have to say, having reported on this, you know, even if Biden had gotten his, his his huge domestic package, if you remember, Build Back Better, was this sweeping plan that was going to create all kinds of investments. The Biden administration was making the argument that this plan of Build Back Better would help bring down inflation because it would, uh, you know, bolster the supply chain, get more goods in. Uh, The hard reality is when you look back at the inflation of the 1970s, there's very little you can do in the short term uh, to to, to stop it. I, I guess what I'm trying to say is even if Build Back Better had passed, it seems almost certain we would be dealing with this intense inflation. 
And the only thing that killed the inflation of the 70s was when the central bank acted by raising interest rates, which I must add created tremendous economic pain in the early 80s, huge recession, 10% unemployment, and uh, you know a banking crisis in the early 1980s. So there's no easy way out of, of these kinds of problems. Uh, again, the title of the, the story I ran this weekend is if if we assign blame, so to speak, and point fingers, the central bank is a very good place to start. It's insulated from voters. Uh, it's insulated from democratic pressure. But we need to understand how the Federal Reserve has set the table for this economic crisis that we're in right now. Now, I feel like I'm dodging your question. I, your, your specific question is, is this argument from Biden going to work? And you talk to any any Democratic consultant right now, member of Congress, uh, they're trudging uphill in a rainstorm. It's very difficult to make political arguments uh, in the face of gas prices at record highs or close to record highs, uh, you know, inflation that's rising uh, out, of, out of control. So, like, look, needless to say, it's going to be extremely hard. Well, Bernie Sanders has come up with a, a plan which is similar to what Gingrich did in the 90s, the contract with America. And he feels that the Democrats need to have that and they need to make the case that the imperative is because the Republicans just block everything and are completely dedicated to taking care of the billionaire class and uh, the 1% of the 1%, which is what Biden said uh, when he said uh, choice between a government by the few for the few or a government for all of us. Um, Biden also gets that much. But one of the things that Bernie Sanders said is that we've got to win more seats and overcome the fact that we've got two corporate Democrats, meaning Manchin and Cinema, who are sabotaging the Democratic agenda. And that, of course, prompted Senator Manchin to complain that he's never complained about Bernie's socialist views, so why should Bernie complain about his more centrist views? So do you think that Bernie's plan has got any chance of waking the Democrats up and prioritizing a kind of contract with America, why they need more people to vote Democrat? So this answer might be unsatisfying, but as you talk about this, I'm reading a fantastic book right now. I know I'm supposed to only talk about my own book, but there's this great book called The Rise and Fall of the Neoliberal Order by this guy, Gary Gersel, who I guess is a history professor. Yeah, I've uh, interviewed him, yeah. Brilliant, brilliant, uh, really great book. And he's identifying these political orders, uh, very large-scale ideas and laws that kind of define the political system. I've written about this before, but we were dominated by the New Deal system under FDR and Democrats. We were, we we're under the New Deal from like the 30s until about the 70s. And then we're under this new order from Reagan until Trump called the neoliberal order. And the thing is shattering. The thing is, is falling apart. We are in a moment of, of truly intense political change. We all feel this. We all know this. However, we express it in, in terms of like 
my God, our democratic institutions are under threat. But the the reason I'm talking about this is, you know, you've got a Bernie Sanders wing of the Democratic Party trying to push for a contract of, with America that would have a certain vision of the role of our government in our economic affairs. Then you've got the Steve Bannon movement of sort of right wing populist nationalists. I think no, they don't. Yeah. Right wing nationalist traditionalists is what they call themselves, I think pushing for an order that is different. When you, when you look at like what is going to connect with voters or what people are going to listen to, the moment feels very big in the sense that, you know, whatever contract Bernie Sanders is pushing right now, or, you know, if there's an 11 point plan from Senator Rick Scott, I think it kind of obscures the fact that we're, we're, we're working our way toward trying to find a vision of a new political order. Like what is going to replace the previous decade of deregulated finance, uh, global international free trade deals that were structured to benefit like the capital owners, the death of labor unions, deindustrialization. We're searching for, for a very big answer to big questions, if, if that makes sense. So it's not going to be like Bernie Sanders is going to come in in August of 2022 with a plan that's going to rally Democrats uh, that'll create, I think, a unified vision behind which they can align. That just doesn't seem to be in, in the cards right now. And there's a there's just I God, I was in D.C. the week before last reporting on a different project. And, and my sincere sense is that we are in a tectonic shifting kind of moment. And uh, I don't know, there's something big on the other side of it. And, and we're all kind of trying to figure out what it is. But the question of like Joe Manchin and Bernie Sanders being in the same political party, it doesn't make a ton of sense right now. Uh, they, they subscribe to different political order views. Manchin is a neoliberal Democrat. Uh, Bernie Sanders is a democratic socialist. And those two things don't coexist together as a coherent political view. And we're continuing the conversation with Christopher Leonard, who's a business reporter, whose work has appeared in the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, Fortune, and Bloomberg Businessweek. He's the executive director of the Watchdog Writers Group at the Missouri School of Journalism and the author of Cokeland, The Secret History of Coke Industries and Corporate Power in America, and most recently, The Lords of Easy Money, How the Federal Reserve Broke the American Economy. And he also has an op-ed at the New York Times, If You Must Point Fingers on Inflation, Here's Where to Point Them. So you mentioned Stephen Bannon. I find it extraordinary that that man has any influence at all because he's just such a criminal. I mean, what he did, shaking down his own supporters, uh, fleecing them out of money to build a wall on the southern border, it's worth noting that his co-conspirators, who took much less money, he pocketed uh, over a million, I believe, of money from these gullible MAGA people, the, his partners in this scam, they're about to be sentenced to do jail time. He got pardoned by President Trump. And as much as uh, Trump appears to be 
headed for a, a political comeback in spite of the in investigations going on now. They may put a dent in his popularity. But if Trump doesn't uh, become the next president, then given the economic conditions that you're talking about, Christopher, somebody that's perhaps even worse in Governor DeSantis of Florida, who's a kind of smart, clever fascist as opposed to a, a reckless and mentally uh, deranged fascist in the form of Donald Trump. I find that even more frightening in a way than Trump if the economic conditions would be so bad that you could elect a cocker spaniel. So uh, a lot to unpack there. Um, you know, it, I, I mentioned Stephen Bannon. I think he's a very interesting character. When I was in D.C. reporting, uh, I actually had the chance to interview him it was off the record, though, but the reason I pay attention to what he's doing is he Stephen Bannon cannot be dismissed as um, and you did you did not do this. I, I just want to be clear. He's not a marginal character. Uh, he, he is not at the sidelines right now. It, it does not appear to me because he is a very listened to voice among the core Make America Great Again voters and. He is pushing a message uh, very, very, very effectively. And so all the, all the things you talked about, about the pardon and the criminal charges is, is, is of course, there. He is listened to and, and driving a political, a, a political movement and, and really bears paying attention to. Um, it is deeply, deeply sobering. In, in the following sense of, of, you know, you're talking about Trump, DeSantis, Bannon, I get the sense that here's my sincere feeling. I get the sense that November 2022, it, it doesn't feel anymore like this very predictable seesaw of political power where, OK, it's the, it's the first midterm election. The president tends to lose seats and, oh. Gosh, the economy's rotten, so now Republicans are going to take control, and the seesaw is going to tilt this way, and the Republicans are going to push. That, that's not what the Bannon folks are pushing for at all. Uh, it, the, the politics is becoming more extreme, and, and I think that that traces back to this deep political economic – these deep political economic forces in America. That's why I'm reading the Gersel book right now. We've watched a political order in neoliberalism come apart at the seams. The, I mean, geez, the, the, the big folks, the Davos people admit that inequality is, is reaching unsustainable levels. Uh, the political anger from voters is just boiling over. Every election seems like a change election. And so that's why... I, I'm really trying to telegraph this message that uh, the the moment is deeply charged. The 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 predictable seesaw doesn't seem to be the model any, anymore. And so um, I think you're 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 quite on point to to point out that the political turmoil, the economic turmoil we're seeing this summer. Is going to turn voters against the party in power, and and then the party on the other side looking to come in could be quite aggressive and even extreme in their vision 
and the agenda which they want to enact. And when I say extreme in their vision, pay attention to, I mean, I'm not saying you don't pay attention, but like the, the rhetoric of, for example, the, the Make America Greater Movement, the Republicans, is not like we want to reduce a tax rate by 3%, <laughs> right? It's like we want to uh, dramatically change uh, immigration law, banking law, really push the country in a, in, in a different direction. And that's what you hear from some on the left, too. But the party really pushing for change, like in, inside the Democratic Party, the institutionalists are in charge right now. Right? You know, nobody ever accused Joe Biden of being a socialist. Whereas if you look on the Republican side of the aisle, it is the, the insurgents who tend to be in, in charge of things right now. So I guess I feel like I'm getting far afield. What I can offer as a reporter right now is this a clear message. The, the financial markets are in for very, very bad year. This is not a surprise to people on Wall Street. They have all known that this is coming. The Federal Reserve has knowingly put us in this place because of decades of, of policy that sought to stoke financial markets. And when we look at rational uh, reactions to this stuff that we could do as a polity, as voters, um, we just need to know that this thing is not coming out of nowhere, that we could see a, a severe stock market correction followed by other market downturns, like in the big market for corporate debt. Um, gosh, I'm, I'm telling you, the volatile economic times I'm talking about are serious, and I'll bring in one other metric right now, which is the price of United States government debt. Okay, it sounds like an arcane thing to talk about the interest rate on a 10-year treasury bill. That's the price of long-term United States government debt. The interest rate on our 10-year debt has more than doubled this year. It is going to continue to increase. It's, uh, it's north of 3% right now, which for the financial types on Wall Street is a take the wind out of your sails, oh my gosh, I'm going to flop down in my chair. I can't believe 10-year Treasury rates are over 3%. That signals we are going to be living in a different economic system for the foreseeable future, where debt is much more expensive, where uh, the government will have to spend more and more of its uh, annual budget on debt, for example, where an entire host of risky assets like corporate leverage loans, collateralized loan obligations, tech stocks, crypto, all that stuff isn't going to make sense to own in a world where 10-year treasuries are north of 3%. I try to walk through all this very kind of slowly and clearly in the book. But uh, yeah, we're, we're seeing signals that we're kind of entering a different economic uh, plateau or, or environment. And getting there is not going to be smooth and easy. This transition is not going to be smooth and easy. And the fact that it's happening on Joe Biden's watch is not Joe Biden's fault. It, it, it really isn't. I'm not trying to carry water for Joe Biden. We could stand here and, and debate and criticize and talk about the administration all day long.
But the fact that this is happening right now, the summer 2022 and the fall, is not the fault of the, the party in power in Washington. This is deep stuff that has to do with our currency and monetary policy. So let's then talk about what Biden can do in the last few minutes here, Christopher, because he's going to be meeting with the Saudi Crown Prince at a, at a Gulf Cooperation Council meeting, I believe, in July sometime. And, you know, the expectation is he's going to have to bow before this little punk uh, who he boycotted because he he murdered and dismembered or had this Washington Post reporter murdered and dismembered. And Biden wanted him to be a pariah, but real politic is dictating that he's got to do something with the Saudis who are in league with the Russians and the Emiratis with OPEX Plus. So he's hoping to whatever compromise he has to do with the Saudis will lower the price of gas. Um, the other thing that's driving inflation, of course, is the price of food, particularly meat. You wrote a book called The Meat Racket. Mm-hmm. Is there anything he can do about that? Listen, I'm just telling you my my honest perception. There is not much the president can do in the short term to truly bring down inflation. Um, There's a great New York Times story by the energy writer Clifford Krauss, who knows of what he speaks. And he's just saying there's not much they can truly do right now. You know, Biden can do whatever he wants with the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. It's not going to fundamentally change the global oil markets to the point where gas is going to be back at $2.50 a gallon on average, you know, where it's north of four right now. Uh, it's just not going to happen. The meat industry, which I've written about a great deal, the meat industry is, I'm sorry to use this word, but they're gouging consumers. They have been for years. It's a monopolistic business. Biden has done way more to actually confront the monopolies in agribusiness than than any president in decades. And that's a true thing. They're, they're doing things that don't get enough attention that are actually working really hard to restore competition and help farmers. It's pretty amazing. That's not going to bring down the price of beef by November, for sure. Not, not in a significant way. The stuff that Biden is doing can be very important, structurally, big picture, should happen, particularly, I think, on the antitrust issues in agribusiness and as restoring competition, helping farmers, very important. But these issues of super hot inflation being at the highest level since 1981 and the Fed responding to it, this is all about the central bank interest rates and ending the era of of easy money. That's what could potentially lower inflation But the point I want to make at the risk of belaboring it, the Fed has, through its policies over the last decade, it it has made this a very painful moment. We're not going to be able to raise rates to fight inflation without having a huge corresponding downturn in financial markets. So, Christopher, just in the last few minutes here, let's, you know, I mentioned uh, that DeSantis is a clever fascist um, and therefore more dangerous than Trump, who's a reckless and somewhat deranged fascist. People may think that's a little uh, overstated or overheated. But, I mean, Trump did try, and we're learning about it from the select committee hearings, he was behind this coup, and it was a fascist coup. And the Republican Party that he controls are now completely dedicated to one-party rule. Their hero is Orban, the democratically elected dictator in 
hungry. That's their role model. So it's underway, and, and DeSantis has, is even less tolerant in many ways than Trump is of any opposition. He just wants to crush anybody who disagrees with him, which is a frightening prospect that that man could become president. So I, this is what bothers me, isn't it? Do you think that a Democratic Party and a Democratic leader could get behind the idea that what's really at stake here in these next couple of years is, is the survival of American democracy itself? Well, I, please correct me if I'm wrong. I hear the Democratic establishment talking about this a lot and saying that democracy is at stake, institutions are under attack, um, the, a tremendous amount of energy is going into investigating January 6th and communicating it to the public. I feel like that message is being embraced by the Democratic Party and moving it forward. But I think it's helpful to talk about the sort of split screen view we're getting right now. Demo you know, the January 6th subcommittee is releasing truly, in my mind, startling, even today still startling uh, facts, images, interviews. But on the other side of the screen, you've got inflation numbers coming in uh, at the highest level since 1981, gas prices hitting record highs, supply shortages on very important items like feminine hygiene products, like uh, baby formula, uh, a stock market that's fallen 20 percent. Uh, so far this year, with much more to come, it's almost certain to say. You've got the CEOs of Morgan Stanley uh, and, and Goldman Sachs talking about the inevitability of a recession. So the Democrats can make the argument uh, that dem democracy is under siege and in danger. I think there's quite a bit of uh, evidence to back that up. Voters, as always, are going to be focused with uh, a much more focus on their daily lives, economic reality. Do I feel like the government is doing what it can do for me? Uh, do I live in a secure system, um, economically speaking? And, and that's where much more energy, you know, the Democrats need to get way more purchase on economic issues if they're going to survive politically the the vote in in november and so i'm not a political strategist guy or a messaging guy or a policy guy just a reporter but they're going to need to have a message that connects with people on economics and and as you're describing biden is trying to do that right now one of the points i'm trying to make in the in the op-ed is we can't talk accurately about any of this stuff unless we can talk about what the central bank has done and is doing. People have got to understand that that's going to be a key reason for higher prices and market declines this year. Well, Christopher Leonard, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Oh, thank you. It's really my pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Christopher Leonard, who's a business reporter whose work has appeared in The Washington Post, The Wall Street Journal, Fortune, and Bloomberg Businessweek. He's the executive director of the Watchdog Writers Group at the Missouri School of Journalism and is the author of Cokeland, The Secret History of Coke Industries and Corporate Power in America, and most recently, The Lords of Easy Money, How the Federal Reserve Broke the American Economy. And he also has an op-ed at the New York Times, If You Must Point Fingers on Inflation, Here's Where to Point Them. 
This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Asher Price. If you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or to publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine One more light goes out in